They say clothes make the man I don't see how they can <laughs> Clothes don't do much of anything at all They just hang there in their closet I'd sit meekly on the chair All I scrunched up well, welcome to this edition of the Wispy Mop Music Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's me. And we are listening to the song Skin by Rod D.C. If it wasn't for cold weather, you wouldn't need clothes at all. Because we got skin, 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 Keeps the dirt out and your insides in. And it's breathable and stretchable and waterproof and washable, renewable and strong yet thin. Fits you like a glove, which given to you in love, lots of lifetime, doesn't cost a thing. How we're talking about skin. Recorded at Jeff Fights Torchlight Recording Studios in Bealsville, Maryland. As I mentioned, Rod DC, the singer, he's also the author. He's a man about the world, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Was not born in the United States. He's born across the pond, so he talks a little bit funny. But when I say a man about the world, not only is he a songwriter, but he's a poet. And I would generally call him an author of many different things. And he has a rather interesting background. So we're going to find out everything there is to know between the time he was born until today. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am so pleased to introduce to you to my friend, Rod D.C. Well, I'm pleased to be here, Todd. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think you realize you're going to have an audience. No, I, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> so before we do anything any further, the song Skin, mm. you wrote that for a specific reason. What was that? Um, I wrote it initially to, to put into a competition for uh, that, that um, nudist um, music festival <laughs> called Avalon or whatever. <laughs> and I entered it in, and, and it didn't win, but... Um, it should have. I think it should have done. <laughs> well, it's 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 incredibly clever, and I love the the lines. But it's very indicative of the way you write. It it's kind of representative of the way I yeah. write. I must say, yes, yeah, so or the way I used to write songs. I, these days, I don't write songs as much because my creative energy goes into writing poems. Unfortunately, I got um, arthritis in my hands and can't play the guitar. Um, for very long anymore, so um, I switched from um, playing guitar and accompanying myself uh, um, on songs I'd written to um, reading poems, and uh, enlisted the help of our uh, longtime friend Ron Goad um, on percussion, and uh, we have a regular bass player now, um, Niels Jonka, who plays an upright five-string bass, um, and uh, so we do a little bit of kind of poetry and jazz time type feel. It's based loosely on the um, approach of the beat poets from the fifties. Yes, that's right. You got it. Yeah. And lots of lots of uh, finger clicking there. And you know why that was? Well, I think I remember you telling me, but you, you're probably going to be better at it than I am. Okay, it was in the um, the gaslight. Uh, cafe in in uh, Greenwich Village, and um, when they were doing um, p um, poetry, 
and jazz um, as well, but poetry re readings. Um, and the building is so designed that um, the air conditioning ducts run up in, up the building uh, into a, um, a single outlet at the top or a couple of outlets. And they collect all of the outlets from the apartments above on the way, which means that any noise you make down in the basement, which is where the cafe was, um, um, is heard very well in the apartments. So uh, the poor people in the apartments were not able to sleep until everybody had left the cafe. And so they complained to the management. So the management said that people couldn't applaud downstairs anymore. At the end of poems, they had to click their fingers, <laughs> which is where it all came from, that, that whole thing. But it kind of transferred to the West Coast, but there wasn't any good reason for it there, apart from affectation. <laughs> it's just the people who did it were cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go back, way back, mm -hmm. in the okay. Wayback Machine. You're from where? Near Cambridge, England. That's where I grew up. And, um, um, you know, people will say I have a, uh, an accent. Uh, I don't have an accent. <laughs> it's all the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a very pleasing accent to well, those of you. us who can't yeah, do it. It, it. it is actually called, called quite often a Cambridge accent because it's, it's um, or a BBC accent because it's uh, accent-less pretty much in, in uh, uh, England. Um, it's also uh, uh, called in a somewhat derogatory way a public school accent, ah. which doesn't mean a public school in England. It means a private school like Eton and Harrow and uh, all of those places that and rugby. Well, go places. go back to when you were a child. Uh, okay, when I was a child, I grew up in a little village called Little Paxton, which was outside of a town called St Neots, and there's another. Uh, town calls it near somewhere else down in Cornwall, I think, but um, it bears no relation apart from they're both named after the same guy. Um, and the village population was about 271 or something like that. So it's that. fairly small. Very small, yes. And um, it was interesting, um, one of my earlier memories of, of living in that village, in, in that community, so to speak, was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth when I was uh, eight years old, nine years old, somewhere around there. Um, and they had a sports day, a village sports day, and they were giving out new money with um, Queen Elizabeth's head on as prizes. And my dad and I thought this was a really good idea, so we entered everything and won pretty much all the money, which much to everybody's annoyance. <laughs> now, just out of curiosity, do you still have any of the money? No. <laughs> that was spent on um, sweets, probably. It was, it was spent at the time. We didn't um, see it as having any great historical significance at the time. <laughs> now, did you grow up in this little village? Were you in like a little cottage house? or Started off in a, in a cottage, which was actually the gatehouse of um, the manor house there. And the manor house was kind of interesting. It was a manor house, then it got too expensive to maintain, as many of the older um properties in England do. They're very costly to keep um, in working operation. Um, but during the war, it was um, it was taken over. Well, actually, before that, it was a girl's, it was then turned into a girl's school. And then during the war, it was taken over as a hospital. And um, so by the end of the war, when I say the war, <laughs> I mean the Second World War, by the end of the war, 
Um, it was in a fairly dilapidated state. Um, however, um, somebody decided that it was still useful for a while and they, um, they turned it into a maternity hospital for a while. And in fact, my sister was born there. It's always interesting because when I used to drive down to the village store, um, I would pass where the manor house used to be because they had to knock it down. It was mm -hmm. falling to pieces. Um, and uh, look up in midair, and that was where my sister was born. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we started off our lives in that neck of the woods in um, the gatehouse, which was a little thatch cottage at the gateway. The drive was still there to the manor house. Um, but it didn't lead to anywhere except this field. <laughs> well, when you say thatch house, you mean the roof was thatched? Yeah, yeah, a little thatched, little thatch cottage. And uh, then, when I was about six, um, we uh, actually moved into a new house, which was built in between my grandfather's bungalow and my great grandfather's bungalow, which were both built next to the um, cricket bat factory, which belonged to. My great-grandfather, it was founded by him in, in uh, 1904. Now, was it called the D.C. Cricket Factory? No, it was count called County Sports Works. And made, um, um, my grandfather was quite innovator, uh, or quite an innovative man. He, uh, he, he, he was the first person to um, invent the open-throat tennis racket. And he actually owned the patent on it for many years and made money from Slazengers and Dunlop. Who really? Paid him money for that, yeah. Yeah, he was the first person to work out that you could actually make a tennis racket out of one piece of wood which went up the handle, around the top, came back down here. So it was all one piece, which made it stronger. Sure. No joints. But previously to that, um, they made handles, and then they had the hoop section, which came to a point like that, and they made a splice, a, a slot in the handle and, and glued it in. Mm -hmm. but of course, that was always breaking there and coming undone. So uh, his invention um, actually uh, bought a lot of properties and so on downtown uh, in St. Nitz for him. So he became reasonably well off. And uh, he eventually left those properties to my mother, who... who uh, sold them off at intervals to uh, supplement the family because <laughs> <laughs> there were times when uh, uh, there were times when the sports uh, business was not that not that great like immediately after the war um it was hard going because a lot of people had been displaced during the war mm -hmm. they weren't around a lot of people had been killed during the war so they weren't around and the old system of every little village having its cricket team and cricket club and so on, and using cricket bats and equipment, was kind of broken down briefly um, for a number of years before they built it back up again as younger people came up and formed the nucleus of the village teams. But immediately after the war, they couldn't get teams together in most of the places, so it was hard to to actually sell them cricket bats. <laughs> they weren't using them and breaking them. <laughs> now, was the was the factory changed into some other thing during the war for different types of production? Or No, not really. It was limited because 
the, the personnel during the war dropped back to my um, grandfather and great-grandfather, uh, both of whom were too old to fight. In fact, my, grand, my grandfather ran the, uh, um, the home guard for, mm -hmm. the, for the area. If you remember Dad's Army yes. on TV. Yep. Yeah. My, my grandfather was the colonel <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or captain in charge of the local home guard. And uh, it was funny. I, there was a lot of um, paraphernalia left over from that. After the war and when I was growing up, I used to play with all the gas masks and <laughs> dumb I guess rifles and stuff. <laughs> I guess there would be. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they found afterwards that many of the, the, um, the gas masks um, were made out of plastic, which were, was um, uh, highly toxic. <laughs> and therefore, if you wore it for any length of time... <laughs> You were likely to suffer more damage than actually <laughs> if you breathe the gas in. <laughs> Gosh. Now, did you end up working in the factory at some point? I did work in the factory. When I was growing up, I worked in the factory. And, uh, um, you know, on school holidays and so on. Um, but I went to um, prep school when I was eight, eight till 11. And then from 11 till 18, I went to um, uh, Kimball School which was uh, a boarding school. And um, so I was only home for the um, college vacations. I actually worked more in the factory up to the age of 11, child labor. <laughs> <laughs> family labor. <laughs> yeah, family labor. But I learned a lot of stuff there. All the tools in the factory, everything was made by hand. I am, I'm, obviously, we had bandsaws and circular saws and sanders and so on, but... Uh, the bulk of the work was done by hand. Were, these were these were old old style craftsmen who who made all of the equipment by hand and strung the tennis rackets by hand. And you know there were no machines to do the stuff that um, happens today. You know, yep. like today they make the cricket bats on a CNC machine. You know, it just makes them to the standard shape, which is fine, except it only it's only about half as good because you have to you have to actually work with the piece of wood and the person that you're working on the billet the blade as we used to call it uh, and uh, each blade is different so the center of gravity changes the weight of the wood changes so the thickness that you uh, work the bat to changes with each bat so these days that doesn't happen so you were actually on the production line yeah if you could it, it, as as much as you could call it a production line, it was, it was a sort of a, a, a very diffuse um, production line. There were things going on here, and the things going there, and things going on there. But it was there was no sense of uh, stuff being handed from one to the other. So much as one process would be finished, and the finished uh, um, product for that particular process would be in a stack in the corner, the person who was doing the next stage would come and collect them as they needed them. Now, how much was it just tennis rackets and cricket bats? Um, squash squash okay. rackets, um, hockey sticks. Um, now, hockey sticks were made of mulberry. And those, we're talking field hockey here, not mm -hmm. not ice hockey. When, uh, when, when you say hockey in England, you mean... You mean field hockey. It's like football and soccer. Yeah, yeah. They don't actually play ice hockey. <laughs> <laughs> too violent, too violent. <laughs> so how much of the production was cricket bats, 
versus about 85%. That was the main part of the business. Yeah. And um, we used to grow the timber, fell the timber, cut it into billets or blades, stack it, season it, and then um, bring it in and work on it. And um, what we could grow was not nearly enough to supply the amount that we could make. Over the course of the war, we had um, my grandfather and great-grandfather and an apprentice who was too young to do anything, who was like 15, um, 14, I think, when he started. Um, and those three were the nucleus of the staff after the war. And then my father, who was actually... A, um, um, a rear gunnery sergeant. <laughs> I say a rear gunnery because he was a rear gunner, um, but he was a he was a, a, a sergeant in the RAF, um, flying Lancasters. After the war, he came back to work in the factory, and he had to learn how to do it because uh, it was handwork, and you know he had no training in it. So mm -hmm. he actually learned how to make the handles, which was a very specific task to make and turn the handles by hand on a lathe. And um, he did that mostly, that and blade making. Now, was your company or your product popular? Yeah, yeah. Um, during our heyday, we had um, many of the international players using us, um, our cricket bats. And um, it's funny, I was, I was looking at some the other day, um, and an old TV came, uh, show came up and... Uh, Sure enough, they were playing with our bats. <laughs> they had a big C on the front for, for county. Oh. And uh, um, we, we supplied um, a couple of people um, um, who were on the English team who were very well known. Um, Jeff Boycott, who was the uh, England captain for a long while, um, as well as being a renowned batsman. And John Edridge, who was the, evening, uh, the England opening batsman for most of his career. Um, I mean, there were a lot more than that, but those are the two. We I mentioned those in, in because they were the two batsmen that we featured in an advertising campaign um, because they had most both scored a hundred hundreds, known as a century when you score a hundred mm -hmm. runs um, in first class cricket, and that's. Uh, uh, it's quite a feat. That's quite a feat. It's a, it's a, they set the bar pretty high. <laughs> now, are cricket bats, or do they break as often as baseball bats? No. Um, the handles are sprung. The handles are cane um, with interspersed with layers of rubber, and uh, which is bonded to canvas so that it holds the, the glue um, joint well. And various handle designs. Um, exist. I did one called the Contraflex, which uh, they and Jeff Boycott used in a number of test matches, which was a, a slightly different um, uh, construction. Um, but the uh, the handle, the cane handles are flexible, and they're when you're looking at a baseball bat, it's a single piece of wood, right? Right. So there's no springs or anything in it. It's just it has a sweet spot, sure, but it has no real resilience. And uh, a cricket bat, on the other hand, has definite flexibility in the handle and the blade stays rigid. But the blade itself is uh, interesting because willow is a soft wood 
made out of elastic fibers. They're very elastic. Um, but the face of the willow um, used, uh, used in the blade is compressed. Um, the top quarter of an inch or so is compressed down to um, less than an eighth. Like in a vice or something? Or? No. It, it, we, we ha you have a, a contoured roller mm -hmm. and a little bed that you put the blade in. And then we used to do it by hand. We had a hand roller, a hand winder that you, you, you wound this blade underneath the um, the metal roller which was made of steel which was contoured and it would compress the face and the edges of the bat and what that did is it gave the the bat a hard exterior um, and transferred the um, the force of the bull hitting the blade um, from the front of the of the blade into the back the meat of the of the blade where the fibers were elastic but not compressed mm -hmm. and they absorbed the energy and then pushed it out again so you had this it accentuated the sweet spot in other words sort of like a golf ball it has a very hard covering but uh, yes. rubber or something on the inside to get a little that's right yeah it, it absorbs the energy and then pushes it back out again so if you hit the ball exactly right mm -hmm. on the blade and um, that that force goes back into the into the meat of the of the blade and then back out again. Mm -hmm. So this is why you, when you see people hitting fours and sixes, um, you know, big hits <laughs> playing cricket, the the ball actually seems to rocket off the blade. And it is rocketing off the blade if it's done right. And I would mm -hmm. imagine for those, what I would call in the field, it mm -hmm. could be somewhat dangerous because that ball's traveling quite rapidly. Oh yeah, yeah, very, very fast. And, and um, it's not so much the case now, they have more protective gear, but back in the day they were not wearing any particular protective gear, not, mm -hmm. even, a, not even a helmet. Now, if, if a cricket bat broke or mm -hmm. split or something, is it just replaced or do you repair them? No, you repair them. I used to repair them all the time. and In fact, you may remember I wrote a poem about it, um, the, uh, the, the whole process of repairing the bat. You see, when somebody has a bat, they choose a bat which is the right weight for them. They want a particular performance from the bat which um, matches their style of play. And so, because everything is handmade, you can make the bat however people want it. You know, so the bat becomes something somewhere between a shield and a weapon, mm -hmm. if you like. And it becomes um, um, like in the same way as a guitar becomes um, seems to be part of you when you're playing it, when you're skilled and you've been playing for years and you're playing without thinking about it. It's an extension of the body. The bat is the same thing. People value their bats highly and they're very um, possessive about them and careful about them. And when they break, they want them to behave exactly the same as before they were broken. So you have to make a choice when you get a broken bat in what you're going to do with it. Now, sometimes it's obvious. You break the handle and you put in a new handle. That's easy. Um, when the blade, the blade starts to break up, because eventually it is wood and you keep hitting a piece of wood, it is eventually going to break up, on the, even on the face which has been compressed. Um, 
then you have to make a decision whether you can actually glue the pieces back down together and, and wrap the blade with, we used to do it with um, goat vellum, which is leather, mm -hmm. which you soak and then um, glue onto the blade and allow to dry. And it forms a skin, a hard leather skin over the, the, the section of the bat, which is starting to break up. And the other option is to put a new blade on, but match the old blade exactly in terms of dimensions and the and the the weight and, and the distribution of weight in the blade. So now I'm waving my hands. Nobody can see me waving. No, that's my hands quite alright. Eventually, we may do this as a video podcast. But I, I you know, this is only my second one. You know, I don't right want now with me waving my hands around. Yeah, I don't want people seeing the mistakes that I made. <laughs> The first podcast was with Rick Hill, mm -hmm. and we were eight minutes into the podcast when I looked down and realized I had forgotten to hit the record button. <laughs> so when you're listening to the podcast, you have no idea, although we laughed about it at the end of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So I made sure when I rehearsed before you came over, to when I did 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, <laughs> that I would physically press what would be the record button before I started it. But oh, that's cool. Now, were you equally adept at producing the bats, and then repairing them. Yes, pretty much. Um, I, I did every process in the, in the uh, um, whole uh, procedure of making the bats and repairing them. So people used to come to me, and, and uh, especially for repairs, um, the local people would um, drop the bats off late at night and... Uh, after their practice, when they just smashed them. <laughs> and expected back first thing in the morning, <laughs> wanted, probably. Well, they wanted by the next practice, which was like two days ago. Um, and I have to explain. It took two days for the glue to dry. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I used to work um, there, as I say, until I, more extensively when I was a little kid, um, sanding and shaping and learning how to use the tools. And uh, my grandfather... Um, made everybody make their own tools, which sounds silly, but actually what you do is you make a plane and the spoke shaves and so on out of beach, but you make them to shape oh, your, your, own, your own hands. So they're er ergonomic. Field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're going to work with them all day, so they better fit your hands and not be too big or too small or whatever. So you have to make them... Um, of course, the, the, the blades are steel and... Those have to be fitted in, and that's fairly standard. But um, So everybody made their own tools, and you have your own tools. Now, before we get into your musical uh -huh. start, you're somewhat of a horticulturist as well. Well, I worked at a fruit farm for a long while. I don't know how clever that makes me. Well, the only reason I say that is we were looking at a property one time, mm -hmm. and in the back it was kind of overgrown, mm -hmm. and you were pointing out different... Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, one of the things about growing up in a small village is um, I did not have any kids my own age in the village. Uh, I mean, literally, none at all. Um, and until eventually there was one family that moved in, um, but they were not considered to be respectable, so ah. I wasn't allowed to um, play with them when I was young. I, I, so I was by myself wandering around the English countryside, and um, so I just got interested in what I was wandering through. So I started learning 
the names of the plants and the trees. And Did you do that through books or asking people or both? Well, both, but mostly through books because um, there weren't that many people to ask. The people who were in the village and so on were busy working their jobs, mostly in um, agriculture. Um, and uh, everybody else was, you know, they had jobs to do. You, you live in the country, you know, it's not a... The bucolic life is not particularly leisurely because there's always stuff to do. Yeah, sun up yeah. to sundown. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there weren't all that many people I could ask. So I, uh, I was devouring books at a, uh, a huge rate at that stage, and we had a reasonable library downtown. So, um, so I mostly learnt stuff out of books. So go back and tell me how you started in music. Ah, it's it's interesting. I started when I was uh, what eight, nine, playing the violin, and there was a lady who gave violin lessons lessons at school, and it seemed a um, an interesting thing to do. I got um, interested in the sounds you could make. I was also I was interested in the wood aspect of it because it, it kind of linked with working in the factory or working with wood. And, so looking at the violins and the way they were constructed was was fun. So I thought it'd be good to play one. And I started taking lessons. They did not take very well. And one of the reasons being that um, um, when you're learning violin, you make such a nasty racket <laughs> that nobody really wanted me to do it anywhere close to them. <laughs> sort of like clarinet. <laughs> yeah, so... It's anyway, so, um, but then when I was about 13, I started, um, decided to pick up the guitar. That was kind of when the beginning of rock and roll started. Was that like the skiffle time or before yeah, that? Yeah, skiffle. Yeah. Yes. Don't you rock me, daddy And uh, what else? Uh, I was born 10,000 years ago. <laughs> I remember seeing, uh, um, I remembered seeing a skiffle group riding uh, in a little higher motorbike uh, motorboat mm-hmm. motorbike motorboat um, um from a fleet that used to go up and down the river um from town we had an island in the river which was also a willow plantation which had a bungalow on it which my uh, great-grandfather built and used to live in uh, when he first started the factory and uh, we used to spend our weekends moored to the island on one of our many boats. We had boats of various descriptions. Um, but anyway, a skiffle group decided that they would spend their Sunday afternoon riding up and down the river, um, playing the three songs they knew. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the guy had a tea chest bass, you know, with a, uh, a broom handle and a piece of string. And... Uh, um, the uh, the drummer was playing the playing the, the motorboat um, machine cover with, with a pair of um, sticks, and the guitarist was managing his three chords pretty well at the back. But then they were all singing enthusiastically. So that was that was uh, pre Beatles Quarrymen, I think, or just around about the same time. Now, did that give you the the push to want to perform, or was that just a fun thing to kind of it watch and listen fun, to? 
it was a fun thing to do. Um, so I got a guitar and started to learn how to, how to play it. I didn't actually start performing till I went to university. Um, I went to University College of North Wales, Bangor, to do forestry, which I thought was going to be a good thing to do, as I was interested in trees and all the rest of it. But when I got there and actually did the course, I was not particularly enthused about it. It was mostly um, about how to grow um, acres and acres of uh, softwoods, fir, fir trees, and the most, uh, um, if you know, economic and effective way. And um, I wasn't really that interested in turning the countryside into these blankets of conifers, off rolling off into the distance, just because that was the way to produce the wood that people needed for construction and other stuff. So what I was more into hardwoods, you know. Yeah. So what was your career? Well, it's not really a career path yet because you're still in school. But. Yeah. Well, no. I'm, when I was in school, I I was blessed with having a um, an extremely good memory, and uh, so it made um, schoolwork very easy for me. I only had to read some something once, and I had it, which was very annoying for the rest of the class. <laughs> as I appeared not to do any work, <laughs> but could still ace the test, so to speak. And so, uh, I, uh, as I say, I went to, went to college to do forestry, um, but I switched in mid-course. I did a couple of years at forestry. I actually got a, um, a past degree, in, and then I switched to English and philosophy, which was a bit of a jump. Yeah, that's a big jump. Yeah. And... Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, that uh, that was okay. But um, in the end, um, I didn't really find that um, college degree helped me in later life that much, apart from the fact that it was a qualification that would, like today, get you in the door somewhere. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't help you do a job particularly. I taught school for a while immediately after college um, and uh, that was that was good I taught elementary school kids and then I got interested in teaching kids a more accessible form of music um, than the traditional music classes where people are listening to classical music and mm -hmm. um, and not that there's anything wrong with that I mean I, I listened to a lot of classical music myself and at that time and continue to do so but many of these kids were um, working class kids who were living in situations where they were not going to go to college they would go to what used to be called secondary modern in in um, england they have a, a different system now um, comprehensive schools where um, people who want to do um, training in trades you know plumbing and electric uh, electricians and carpentry and so on take a different crop uh, career path in school um, from those who want to go to college and uh, i felt that the people who were learning to become mechanics or electricians or so on were really pretty unlikely to listen to classical music because it wasn't something which occurred in their in their lives in a general sense and, and 
not that they wouldn't be able to, but it's just not something which was going to happen. What was going to happen far more often was um, um, singing in the pubs on a Saturday night around an old piano or round people playing the guitar uh, while they're around a campfire or a bonfire or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and I thought it was more useful to those kids at least and probably everybody else to actually focus on instruments which they could access easily. And again, you know, you, you get somebody learning the bassoon to play in the school orchestra and they're going to go work in the supermarket, the chances of them playing the school, <laughs> uh, you know, the bassoon after school um, is over are very limited. Whereas teach them to play guitar and they have something they can play and probably will play um, their whole lives. Sure. You know, or they could. So my emphasis was on trying to get kids to learn um, how to play guitar, really. That was the easiest thing for, to, to teach them. And so I actually managed to persuade the um, school to buy some guitars and, and uh, I ended up teaching in not just the school I was in but in one or two um, other schools as well, going right up to um, um, high school or, or the equivalent of high school, although not up at the, the, uh, the older end because those people were too busy trying to get what's called GCE A-levels, which was what was required to get into college. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I ended up teaching at quite a few places, teaching kids how to play guitar, which was cool. Now, you said, or you've told me in the past, that you did quite a bit of busking. Yes, yeah. Yeah, after, after I had taught for a couple of years and decided teaching really wasn't my long-term goal, I had no idea what my long-term goal was at that stage. And I think, you know, you always think that you're going to decide on a career, you know, when you're at school and take take that path to qualify for that career. And I think that only applies to about 10% of people, you know, who have that that clear vision of what they want to be. They want to be doctors or they want to be um, accountants or because they're good at math or, you know, they, they want to um, work with their hands, they want to work in a nursery, they want to work on a farm, you know. Uh, sometimes uh, people's... people's um, lives are kind of decided for them but i think most people don't really decide what they're going to be doing when they're 30 um when they're in their teens and in fact i think your 20s are for really finding out what direction you finally do want to go in after all your brain doesn't get mature until you're about 25 <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're man, lucky yeah <laughs> a, a man, man's takes a lot longer than that you know <laughs> So, so yeah. Um, so what were you going? Sorry, what were you going to ask me? There? So how did you go about the transition from the teaching to the busking? Oh or? yeah, yeah. When, once I stopped teaching, um, uh, I'd, I'd started um, performing in in college, um, playing um, Rolling Stone songs and <laughs> anything as well as folk songs and Bob Dylan songs, of mm -hmm. course. Um, uh, and had got into performing to people. I kind of liked it, the 
the whole concept. And um, also, I wanted to see a bit of Europe. So one day, I set up my uh, girlfriend and my guitar, and off we went. So, where did you go? Paris first, and uh, got a place. Uh, got a got a a semi-permanent room in in a little hotel near uh, off Boulevard Saint-Michel in Paris and uh, uh, used that as headquarters and um, played in the area to some cafes and so on. But then I moved on to the cinema queues. And I actually worked out the way to do... Uh, the way to do busking and the way to make money at it. And um, it, it's a lot different from what you think it is or should be. So what For is a start, the if you really need the money, forget about busking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and there's two things about busking. You, What are you doing for the people who are listening to you? You have to, you have to look at what they, what they, what they want. What you're doing, if you do it right, is you're embodying an, a romantic image of what they could have done if they hadn't had to do this or hadn't had to do that. So you've got to present yourself as an alternative and romantic or romanticized view <laughs> um, um, of, of, of what a busker is. So A, you're always clean. Okay, you can be barefoot, but you're always clean. You're always reasonably well dressed. Um, nice shirts, black pants, and um, you make an effort to keep the clothes clean and in in good shape um, every time you go out. And if you have fourteen shirts, which I did, <laughs> you could just rotate. Them. You just rotate them. Yeah. And uh, um, that's important. The other thing is um, you need um, preferably two pretty girls to collect the money. And attract the men. Yes. Yes. So you walk, if you're walking on, on, the car, uh, on, the, on the cinema queue, I would do the singing and sit back and the girls would... Pass the hat. Pass the hat or whatever it was we had. And um, in those days, you had to be careful at the end of the evening because the, the cops would watch you carefully and not say anything at all during the course of the evening. And then they bust you right at the end of the evening and confiscate ah. your take. You see, So you have a, a, another person who is seemingly unconnected with you. Okay? And uh, you meet up with him. I had a friend who did for us every night um, at uh, um, some point very late in the evening um, in, a, in a cafe or whatever um, um, or whatever is handy um, uh, I used to do it in a cafe um, and would do a little exchange and we would have a prepared take which was small small relatively small the large take he would Take back to that. You have to trust somebody. <laughs> so you were clandestine. <laughs> Absolutely. So he would take that back to the hotel, and then we would um, sp split it up afterwards. But uh, 
I made more money street singing than I have ever made in my life. Really? Oh, yes. Huge amounts of money. Wow. Huge amounts of money. You have to be, uh, shall we say, very bold to do it. And it took me a while to build up enough courage to actually step out to the cinema queues. I would imagine also that location is important mm-hmm. as to where you perform. Yeah, well, um, yeah, absolutely. The uh, um, Paris, the biggest money is in the cinema queues, or was then, um, and uh, I would I would do that for like two, three hours, and then I would drop back to a um, a cafe we used to play at regularly, take a little break. Um, maybe have some dinner or something and come back and do another shift at the cinema queues because the films are going around. So how how much could a good busker make in an evening like that? Equivalent of about um, two to three thousand dollars. Wow. <laughs> and that was in nineteen sixties. Yeah, I said the equivalent, yeah. But that's what it would uh, that's what it was, yes. I know many music, working musicians yeah. would love to make that in a year. I know. I mean, really, it, it, was, it was ludicrous. But remember, that was it, it's kind of like going on the road with the Rolling Stones. There's, there's five of them and a crew of uh, 60 or 80 <laughs> carrying the gear and moving it around from town to town. So, so when they're making millions and millions of dollars, they have millions and millions of dollars to spend out as well. Now, did you meet anybody famous in the music business when you were at that stage of your life? Or what we, who we would call famous? Well, um, Paul McCartney, I suppose. That's famous. You, oh, you that? met him? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, we, had, uh, we had dinner one night at uh, Peter Cook's house. Uh, and, and I don't know if you remember Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. In the, yes. Yeah, in, the, in that period. Now, how does he fit into this? Um, my my then wife was uh, the sister of Peter Cook's wife. Oh, so I was a sort of quasi family, and we'd just come back from a um, um, a European trip, and um, Paul happened to be having um, dinner with them that night. That was an astonishing place for meeting people in terms of the number of people who were household names who would have dinner with um, um, Peter Cook, who was, I have to say, at dinner, the funniest person I have ever seen or heard. He was just hilarious. Naturally, or he put it no, on? No, naturally. He, just, he was just extremely witty and very fast and uh, in, enormously clever guy. Now, wasn't he also a very good pianist? No, there was Dudley who was the oh, okay. who was the pianist. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so go back to when you met Paul McCartney, because mm. as as a lover of the Beatles when mm. I was younger and still, it, it was good actually because I was playing, um, I was playing um, Tambourine Man, um, in the um, in the other room from just I was just playing tambourine man and he come, came in and told me I got a chord wrong <laughs> <laughs> so I said okay <laughs> I believe you <laughs> <laughs> and of course he's playing my guitar backwards backwards which was 
difficult to follow to start with, but after a while you got used to it. Now, what stage in his musical life would that have been? It was around. It was around Sergeant Pepper time. Mm-hmm. It was. He was a really nice guy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and um, he, he comes over as that. I think when he talks to a lot of people, but he was uh, extremely pleasant. I mean, who was I? I was. I was a. I was a. You know, a nobody who'd just come back from street singing in Europe, and um, and my guitar skills were. Okay, but not not dazzling, <laughs> <laughs> like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I mean, he was just kind. You know. Now, I mean, did he teach you anything? Like, let me show you something, or did you show him something? No, he didn't really teach me anything. He was—I mean, we were just swapping songs. Yeah, you know. Well, I was in fairly good practice at that stage because we'd been singing for mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of. A lot of time, but I, I wasn't just playing in Paris. I've actually played in a lot of other places in Europe. But in, in the summer, I went down to Villefranche, which is just outside of Nice, which is this beautiful horseshoe-shaped harbour, with which had at that stage fourteen restaurants, which lined the outside of the harbour. I used to start one end and sing my way around the fourteen, uh, and um, there was resistance to that to start with because um, you know the uh, they weren't going to let just anybody do it, so I had to meet a certain standard. So you had to audition almost. It wasn't really an audition, but um, I started. Uh, I asked permission at the first one, and then finally, once I'd finished at the first one, the second one would. Oh, I see. Call, called me over. Call you over. Yeah, and yeah. once I'd done the two, then it seemed like, okay, he's good enough to play. He's not going to annoy anybody. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> you know they like that because they like the the color, um, and again it's that romantic vision of I could have done that. You know, mm-hmm. your people like about it. That's it, it. It's not what you're singing or how good you are. So well, you have to be reasonably reasonably confident. So uh, what got you to give that up and move forward and end up in the United States? Um, I came back and started, I was doing um, um, cottage renovation in England because I didn't actually want to work for anybody. Mm-hmm. So I was um, renovating cottages and, uh, then, and playing the folk clubs. And then um, I actually started running some folk clubs because uh, it seemed like an easy thing to do. It wasn't particularly, but I got the hang of it. <laughs> And it was cool. I I finally had a, I bought a not bought but uh, I took a lease out on a f- an old farmhouse in West Chinook, which is in Somerset, um, and not far away from Glastonbury, mm-hmm. and uh, set up a circuit of folk clubs which were on every a different night of the week. So the one we you know Fridays, uh, Friday Saturday Sunday, um, we usually wasn't one on a Monday, but we then had. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday went round again, um, and I would book people um, from London um, or on the college circuit to come and play those clubs, and I'd book them for the week so they could play in a different club. Oh, sure. Each night. Yep. Okay, and put them up at the farm. 
And so that actually made reasonable money. And then I was working during the day um, on the uh, building sites. And I used to use some of my friends for labor because they weren't working mm-hmm. real jobs either. <laughs> and they needed money. <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, during that period, I, I, I worked with one or two people who... Um, kind of encouraged me to move f- further forward into music. Um, at the same time as I was developing the music, I was actually t- putting on concerts at odd places, kind of like we, d- we do here. And uh, um, I did a couple of folk festivals, um, three-day folk festivals from scratch, which were, were fun to do. Um, when I say I did them, I mean I found, Organized the, them. found the place. Mm-hmm booked the field, booked all the people, got the stage built and all the rest of it. And, uh, of course, they were a little more primitive than um, people require these days. Um, but it was good It was good to do that. But I, I started really playing um, more widely myself in the folk clubs when um, I joined up with um, a guy called Paul from, uh, who was a harmonica player. So I was at that stage doing quite a bit, bit of more blues and uh, his his name uh, his name uh, was not particularly well known but he had worked um, with Alexis Corner he'd, he'd um, played for Alexis Corner's band for, for on and off for about a six month period and then he came down to the West Country and I hooked up with him and uh, we played as a duo and we got we actually got on TV on the Cyril Tawney folk um, program, which was put on by Westwood TV, which was uh, one of the commercial TV channels in in England as opposed to the BBC. Right. And uh, it was interesting. We did a, a couple of pieces for them, um, which lasted about five minutes, which um, they used as interlude music at those stage at those days. Um, Commercial TV stations bought a lot of programs from the States, um, but they didn't have enough ads to um, fill the space the right. space up to half an hour as opposed to um, uh, American TV, which um, made their, their programs to be 22 minutes long or whatever, so mm-hmm. they fit in the half hour. So there was a, this blank period and they were called interludes. They would put on a little five-minute uh, five interlude. And you played those playing. live? Yeah, well, we didn't play them live. They, were, they, they recorded, recorded them, but they would then play them out. In fact, when I went back to England at one stage uh, 20 years later, I um, happened to be down in, in the West Country, and one of them came on the TV. Really? <laughs> Completely. You'd yeah. been getting the royalty check the entire time, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I wish, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much the royalty would have been, about you know, about three pounds, I bet. <laughs> it's like Spotify, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so how well, did Spotify you... is fine if you can if you can actually get, you know, a million downloads or whatever, or listens. So how did you get to the US? Um, um, my wife at that time was American. She came from California. Um, I had two young kids, and I didn't really like Margaret Thatcher all that much. 
Mm-hmm. So I decided to move to the States before the kids got to be school age. That's how I got to America. Now, did and I'd you, always wanted to come to America. Yeah. You know. Now, did, did you do music in California? Not much. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time. I mean, I still played, but I spent more time. There weren't all that many places to play unless you were really good, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, there were there was the Ashgrove and, and the Gold Bear down Huntington Beach. And th- th- there were a lot of good places to listen to music. Um, in fact, I used to catch a lot of the English people coming through. Um, um, Martin Carthy. um mm-hmm. Used to come through and he'd play the, with the Watersons, um, usually in LA. And I'd catch them when they came through. Richard Thompson, mm-hmm. too. Um, and both of the, them still play. Yeah. Perform. Yeah. yeah. And if they're in my neck, of, or, or I'm in the neck of the woods they are in, um, when they're touring states, I sometimes go see them and say mm-hmm. hi. But... Uh, I didn't do really much during college years, and uh, not college years, California years, um, because the kids were growing up and there were a lot of other things to do, and I was trying to earn a living, mm-hmm. and it was that was hard. Um, California is good if you have money. If you don't really have a huge amount of money, it's it's tough. You know, you have to still is going. from what I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 It's. Sand, sea, and despair, California. <laughs> so you eventually gravitated to the East Coast. Yeah, I came here. I came here after the mini recession, mm-hmm. um, um, the Reagan recession, mm-hmm. um, in search of in search of work. At that stage, I was working for the Hearst Corporation. Well, actually, it wasn't the Hearst Corporation at that stage. It was I was working for Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. News, News Group Chicago, which was an offshoot from the Chicago Sun-Times, which he'd, he was accumulating, Rupert Murdoch was accumulating um, American newspapers at that stage because he was big in the newspaper business, both in Australia and England. Um, and that was one of the areas he worked. He was, um, when I was in California, um, and, and Murdoch was still doing that, he was actually putting together... Um, with Barry Diller, what would become Fox TV. Oh, yeah. And he did had a lot of, several of the meetings at the place I worked in, Irvine, which was the syndicate building there. And uh, that housed News America Syndicate and the Times of London Syndicate, which basically took um, material um, from all over the states um, and syndicated it to the newspapers that were published all around the States. Mm -hmm. These days, there are not so many newspapers published. No, they're not. Um, The source of news is is different now. I mean, there are local papers in the same way as we have the local paper here, but their significance and circulation is much diminished. Right. Um, But anyway, in those those days, it was a... I, I did a syndicated feature called Infographics. I was one of the uh, first people to actually send in uh, graphics by, by, by wire. Oh. Um, from one, we would create them in uh, California and send them further in California, up north to the um, San Francisco papers. And uh, I used to go up there quite a bit um, to uh, 
sort of coordinate that. We were trying to get it so we could actually ship the stuff out daily. But we were syndicating comics and um, political uh, columns like mm -hmm. Evans and Novak. Yeah. And uh, um, the syndicated um, advice columnists of the day, Ann Landers, mm -hmm. um, etc. Sure. And uh, it, it was an interesting period, yeah. actually. It really was. And uh, then you eventually made it to Frederick, where you, I think it was building management, sort of, that you were doing. But you started, you know, the cafe. Yeah, I actually, uh, b before that, I was working for um, a local company here, which was a German-owned company, um, doing marketing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I did a lot of uh, I did a lot of trade shows around the, the country for, for that company. Um, um, basically, the obvious places that you show, but I've been pretty much all over the state with uh, with trade shows, mm -hmm. uh, selling welding equipment. Ah, fascinating stuff! Stuff I look for all the time. Yes, yes. Well, it, it is interesting. The robotic welding equipment is is whole other world you know and that's why they only need three people to run a car factory that's true because all <laughs> robotics right <laughs> yeah. um, so you started westview cafe or i mean westside cafe started running shows again mm -hmm. and eventually yeah actually i was running shows before we started the cafe um downtown putting them on in various places mm -hmm. um like the black box theater and so on and i was always looking for places to put stuff on uh, well, you knew that because yeah. you were around at that, at that time when we were doing various things and at the same time. But you became known for, for the lack of a better term, music promotion, acoustic music promotion. Yes, yes, yeah. That that was Westside West Westside Cafe, yeah. uh, um, which started pretty well and did pretty well for the music mm -hmm. music side. And actually, we were just about breaking the. My, my problem there was that the person who I was um, in partnership with um, in that situation um, was overextended. Mm -hmm. And consequently, his accountant was saying, you got to sell off some stuff yeah. because you're in, in too, too much trouble here. And it wasn't the fact that the cafe wasn't working. It's, it's just that the cafe is by nature a high-risk yeah. um, operation. And and so that they sold off, mm -hmm. and at that stage we moved the uh, the uh, show that we were putting on um, the songwriter showcase uh, at Westside Cafe over to Brewers Alley downtown, and uh, as you know, we just shut that down after fifteen years. You know, it's the it's funny because when I did my television show on restaurants dining mm -hmm. out. Oh, you used to come to the West Side. Yeah, but the, you know, I used to say to my son, you know, he'd say, how long did you do that, Dad? And I said, well, 15 years. He goes, no, it's actually 17. He's a much better memory guy than I am. And he says, you realize that MASH was only 11 years. So <laughs> yes, really. you and I both have something where we have a... <laughs> we did it We did it longer than that. Yeah, the royalties are not as good, but the... No, uh, they're not. <laughs> but besides the uh, Brewer's Alley Songwriter Showcase, mm -hmm. always done on Monday evening, you also were instrumental in the beginning of the local organization, Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise, known, yeah. as, known as Fame. Yeah, well, I was part of the, the core group initially, 
uh, that Rick Hill um, kind of enlisted mm-hmm. when he moved to the area to um, to put the organization together. And it was it, it's a very um, very valuable um, organization and it does a lot of good stuff. Um, I was there, as you know, part in the early time times, and I actually had to back out of it um, because I was just overextended myself. Yeah, um, I I had too much going on. I was responsible for too many things, mm-hmm. um, and um, um, I wasn't able to stay on top of everything, and it was that was upsetting not to be able to. You know, you get that feeling where everything is out of control Mm -hmm. and you have to, like, pull it in. Well, so I wasn't really able to stay with FAME uh, very long. I still think it's a great organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, we functioned as a um, FAME-sponsored event uh, for for many years, putting the Songwriter Showcase on. And initially when we did the showcase, um, um, I did it um, weekly. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which was crazy. Now I think about it, but <laughs> it, it is—it's uh, a lot of work. It's a huge amount of work, you know. But I did benefit from the two to three years before we moved from Westside, uh, because at that stage I was booking music four or five nights a week mm-hmm. um, from people up and down the East Coast. So I developed a huge number of contacts there, which really stood us in good stead. Um, when we did the, the Songwriter Showcase. For, and that was put on a Monday for a very good reason, which right. is that those, those people were traveling and touring up and down the East Coast on a regular basis, and they didn't have anything to do on Mondays. Right. So it was easy for them to uh, drop in. Now, who were some of the, or let's ask it this way, who were some of the more famous people who came through the West Side or maybe then subsequently at Brewer's Alley that you can think of? I know John Poussette Dart was there at one yeah. point. Uh, Kevin Welsh, mm-hmm. who is uh, pretty well known. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who are very f- well known and very famous on the um, acoustic circuit. Uh, I say acoustic because it's not really folk circuit anymore. No, it's not. Um, yeah. It gets dubbed Americana a lot of the time, and it's not really Americana either. Mm-hmm. Um, acoustic is probably the best way to uh, to describe it, which is why fame, being Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise, right. um, makes a lot of sense for the name of that organization. It, it you know, keeps people in the right bracket. People mm-hmm. know what they're getting. Yeah. <laughs> so um, now, now you are... A published poet. Yes, yes. I mean, the uh, right on the table in front of us, we have your your book here mm-hmm. um, with a fantastic photo. <laughs> if I'm walking around Barnes & Noble or any bookstore mm-hmm. and I don't know what I'm looking for, what usually attracts my attention is the cover of the book mm-hmm. or the title, if it's a unique title, and that would catch my attention. That's good, yeah. I actually, um, that was not accidental. I posed it. Oh, you did? I, yeah, I, I, I knew what I wanted to do with it. Yeah. There'd been a previous photo that somebody had taken of me where I'd been waving my arms around. Mm-hmm. And it had actually uh, said, that caught my attention. I need to do that again. So I carefully posed it so that the paper was leading up to mm-hmm. Ron's head up there, <laughs> as you can see in the photo. Um, 
Yeah. And and the other hand was within the frame, so it's like inviting people in. So for those people who are listening who are not familiar with your book, what is the title? It's called Neo-Beatery Ballads, and it's called uh, it's New Beat Poetry. And uh, this is kind of, it's, it, it's, a, it's only half the poetry I do, beat poetry, but it's, uh, it took off in a, a variety show that was started by one of our friends, Chris Anderson, mm-hmm. Harried Americans. The Harried Americans, yes. The Harried Americans Roadshow, which you have played at. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, we have a, another show coming up at the UU. Um, CF. CF. Yep. I always get want to say FC, but it's not. Yeah, Unitarian <laughs> Universalist Christian Fellow, something Con- like that. Congregation. Yeah. Of Congregation of Frederick. Frederick. Yes, yes. yes. Um, which is off Elmer Durr Road mm-hmm. for, further there. And that, I think, is on the... Mm, 18th of April, mm-hmm. Saturday, 7 to 9. So do you find writing poetry similar to writing lyrics? Writing beat poetry is similar to lyrics, but it's it's interesting. I have this year and last year, um, I'm doing a presentation to Maryland Writers Association uh, chapters, various chapters called... Um, um, what is the, basically it's on the difference between song lyrics and poems. Well, that's a big yeah. honor, and well, not so much an honor. It's it, it, I, I, they they pay me for doing it, which is good. But well, still, it's <laughs> an honor, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got two coming up in um, one in one in Howard County uh, chapter and one in uh, PG County um, in the next two or three months oh that's terrific so, and and basically i put uh, I, I put on a about an hour presentation and show people there is a huge difference between poetry and lyrics now beat poetry kind of bridges the two um because you want it to be accessible it's it's, it's a way of making poetry accessible to those people who say no i don't like poetry i'm I, I don't understand it. And, mm-hmm. um, I had a terrible teacher at school and I never got on with it and blah, 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 blah. And if I can come out at the end of a show where somebody said, says to me, um, I don't usually like poetry, but I like this. Well, I have succeeded. <laughs> so you're doing it in a way, the way you constructed your busking mm-hmm. to make it attractive to those yes, who are standing around I'm, you or sitting I'm in front setting, of you. I'm setting these lyrics in... In a uh, in a quasi jazz, mm-hmm. but it's not just jazz because uh, these two guys, uh, Mr. Ron Goad, uh, the uh, percussionist, um, and uh, Niels Jonker can play in any style. So they um, they uh, take the the lyrics that I send them, and with a little arrangement um, instructions that I give them which are very limited, but Ron can turn three words of description that I say into a full-blown arrangement, um, on um, rhythmically anyway. Well, I've watched him mm. when you've done your beat poetry mm. at, at Brewers, mm. and he has his notes, or you give him the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the poem, and he's made some marks on it, and he stands at his you know, African drum, and he's looking to the right, mm. And he's basically figuring, okay, he's coming up on that, and oh, yeah, 
Yeah, he, he's very, very good at that. There are, there are instructions there, and, and, and uh, Niels is good as well, but mm -hmm. Niels just follows Ron right. um, all the way. And in fact, it was interesting. I did uh, uh, last Friday, instead of when Niels was doing something else, so I had a, a sub in, um, in, in the shape of uh, Karim Wazfi, who is uh, a world-famous <laughs> cellist. <laughs> and he had done it once before, at one place we played down in Fairfax, um, he, he just happened to be there that evening, um, and he stepped in and did it. And uh, Ron was talking to him about um, uh, the fact that uh, we were um, we weren't sure who was going to play bass for us this time, but but that he would recognise me because we'd played before, and and he said, "Oh no, I'll do it, I'll do it." <laughs> so he came and. Uh, put on just one incredible show he was um, he was not just playing to the, the beat poetry but what i usually do and you have to bear in mind that i'm presenting poetry in what is a variety show which mm -hmm. is mostly music to a crowd of people who are out to have a good time right. on a friday night mm -hmm. these are not um, literary people and they're not um, expecting to have culture <laughs> punch, punch them in the side of the head. So um, I try and sneak up on them <laughs> and uh, and literally do it um, uh, uh, do it to music, shall we say. So uh, it, it, it's been fun because I, I build up a really good following um, down there. Well, we're just about out of oh, time. We're out of time. We're oh, out of goodness. time, but this has been fantastic. But I have hours more. <laughs> I don't have any more space left in my, my little mini card there. Well, thank you very much for having me, Tom. You're very, very welcome. And, uh, I've enjoyed the, chatting. Um, continued success with your poetry and your thank live you. shows yeah. and these, uh, for the lack of better words, seminars you're going to be giving to yeah, the different places. Yeah, they are kind of like little seminars. Yeah, so. what fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's working well. Well, thank you for coming out and being actually on the second second episode of Wispy Mob Music Radio Podcast. Super, I was glad to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Mr. Rod DC, and we're going to finish the show with the rest of his song, Skin. Thank you, Todd. Keeps the dirt out and your insides in And it's breathable and stretchable and waterproof and washable Renewable and strong yet thin Fits you like a glove Was given to you in love Lots a lifetime Doesn't cost a thing How we're talking about Skin, 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 skin. Adam and Eve in Eden Had no clothes they didn't need them The garden was climate controlled and the owners started wearing leaves and other things to beat the freeze when they were kicked out in the cold. So fashion started with the foliage from a fig. Then Eve asked Adam, Is this too short? Is this too long? Does it match my eyes? Is the color wrong? Does a snakeskin hat need a feather or a twig? And do these fig leaves make my butt look big? 
And that I'm back to be back in the garden like in days of old Just wearing skin Keeps the dirt out and your insides in And it's stretchable and breathable and waterproof and washable Renewable and strong yet thin and it fits you like a glove If it's given to you in love Life's a lifetime, doesn't cost a thing I we're talking about skin Skin, 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 skin. You can lotion it or oil it, tan or fan it But don't boil it Customize it with some cool tattoos